Hey, this is Anna from Voices of Destiny, and you're listening to Focus on Metal. Hey, Metalheads, Scott Thompson here, welcoming you to Episode 7 of our Little Mountain Sound series. As many of you know, we started this project back in 2015, thought we'd get it in last year, and the sad truth is that we got about half of it done. I mean, we got all the audio done, we recorded all the interviews, unless Richie suddenly comes up with another guy, which he did months after we thought we were done, but it's a matter of finding time to air it all. So in our last Little Mountain segment, we talked to the mighty James Kotak, and as we've been doing in this series, this time we have to swing the mic back to another behind-the-scenes person. In this case, it's a very important person in the history of Little Mountain, and that would be Ron Obvious. So I know you're thinking, what, Ron Obvious, the Monty Python character? No, it's actually, guy's real name is Ron Vermeulen, better known as Ron Obvious. And again, as I said, very, very important person in the entire story of Little Mountain Sound. Of course, we've heard from plenty of really important guys, but Ron is one of these guys that all the other guys all point to saying, you need to talk to Ron. And so Richie arranged for us to do just that. So back in October of 2014, yeah, it's been that long, we got on the phone one afternoon with Ron Obvious. Now, I won't give you a whole big rundown on Ron's history because he actually does quite a nice job of it in the uh, in the interview itself. So I'm going to let the interview speak for itself on that regard. But if you want to know what Ron does these days and find out everything that he does, including recording and photography and all of that, you can check out his website at dragonflymobilerecording.com. So just a quick note before we dive into things with Ron, just to let you know, this week is definitely going to be a music light episode. Ron's got a ton of good information, lots of good stories about Little Mountain. I think probably one of the most historical perspectives of the studio of everybody that we talk to. And uh, Guy has got an amazing history, both with Little Mountain and after Little Mountain, with a lot of stuff. This is a guy who definitely remembers the names of everybody and all the types of contributions that they made, both at Little Mountain and then, you know, in the music industry as we know it at large. At one point, when we thought we were just about to end the interview, he just remembered another guy and what he had done in the 90s and just traced a whole other branch of music history in production coming out of the Little Mountain story. So, like I said, Guy is an amazing fount of information, probably a reason why he also uh, works as a teacher as well. I know Richie and I had a blast talking to him, and that I hope you guys will have uh, a blast listening to everything he has to say. So with that, I present to you Little Mountain Sound, Episode 7, with the one and only Ron Obvious. Right, guys, I think we're ready to lay this first track down. Take one, roll.
let's take it again. And Gene, yeah. really explore the studio space this time. You got it, Bruce. I mean, really. Yeah. Explore the space. I like what I'm hearing. Go away. Okay, we'll we'll dive in. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, so yeah, like I said, you know, this is just uh, to me, it's a great opportunity to talk to someone like you. I look at your resume, and right off the bat, I think, okay, this is a guy who designed a studio for Bob Rock, and and to me, that's right there. There's like there's the big check mark on the CV right there. It's like Bob just doesn't go to anybody. So I think it's it's just a you know it's a pretty amazing thing to me. But um, you know, obviously. You know, you were involved, you started at Little Mountain, what, in 76, is that correct? That is correct. September 76, I started. So you were there to see the changeover from more of the, the jingle focus and into more of the kind of the bands coming in and the, and the bigger focuses and all of that? Absolutely. I mean, when I first started there, it was basically a jingle studio. Uh, there was two rooms, Studio A and Studio B. But effectively, during the day, uh, my role initially was to deal with the assisting in setting up the rooms for both Studio One and Studio uh, Studio A and Studio B for the various engineers that were there. And uh, yes, for during the day, it was mostly jingle. So... Mm-hmm. Uh, and then later in the afternoon, my role would switch over to the dubbing room aspect and doing the dubbing to get the jingles out for that night. At nighttime, though, the very first of the bands were starting to come in. One of the rooms, generally Studio B, would be used by the nighttime. And, you know, some of the early adoptees of that were um, 
were, were bands that ultimately that's where Brian Adam came. It was a band named Sweeney Todd um, that uh, later had Hot Child in the City and Roxy Roller, which you may have may have heard of. They were they they you know charted in the United States. And uh, they were the night bands that kind of did there. Uh, there were other, you know, there were many other bands that worked in the, in the, you know, the night type of thing. And then out of that, Studio A was a lot of time empty at nighttime. So this is where 70, you know, this is around early 77. So at that point, you know, punk had sort of made its arrival in Vancouver. And I sort of latched onto that, even though my early career was I was into prog rock. I was the ultimate Genesis, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. Uh, you know the the yes type mm. artists. I went and saw those shows and everything like that. But uh, by the time I got into the music industry, uh, I it, it completely switched around. So anyway, about four months after they hired me uh, to do the to work at the studio, the studio started to get busier again. There'd been a big change over the studio. That that's how it allowed me to join the studio. And so about four or five months later. Um, uh, they needed another person. So lo and behold, Bob Rock comes in. And I had a technical background. Bob Rock came from Victoria, uh, which is uh, on Vancouver Island. And uh, he was the new hire. So I kind of taught him, you know, how to do the dubbing room and how to work, you know, set up the microphones and things like that. And so it made my job actually a little bit easier because now the two of us were together because one could set up the one studio, the other one could set up the other studio. And then what happened, of course, we both started enjoying the punk rock scene, you know, what was happening. And we had a really wonderful manager at the studio, Bob Brooks, and uh, we approached him and said, hey, look, is there any way that we can maybe use the studio at nighttime, the rooms that are not being used? And as long as the band pays for the two-inch tape, you know, is that okay? And he says, well, you know, as long as they don't, you know, wreck the studio or anything like that. And, of course, we promised them that that, would, that wouldn't happen. So <laughs> there was Bob Rock and me at nighttime. We would go, you know, do, well, we would do all of our jobs during the day from we'd, a lot of the times we have to be at the studio at 8.30 in the morning, set up for the jingle session, do our work all through the day till 5 o'clock. And then after that, we would go to the clubs at nighttime and go, you know, the burgeoning underground punk scene. So for a period of time, both Bob Rock and me, one time, you know, he would be the producer and I would be the engineer, and we would just do little singles or little local bands. Uh, one of those bands eventually is still a band that was around for many years as DOA, uh, Point of Sticks, Subhumans, so the K-Tales. I mean, they just went on and on and on. So what was great is Bob Rock and me had a great relationship thing where he would do one thing, I would do the other. Sometimes we'd do separate things, and sometimes we'd join together. Bob Rock himself, of course, was a musician and brought eventually a friend of his over from Victoria, and they formed a band called the Paolas, and uh, that was the start of his you know, his own recording thing. And they did a single with, um, I think the song was called China Boys. And then and again, I helped doing the recording of that. You know, we were all kind of working together in the evenings at that point. So that's sort of how we're starting out. So that would take us to 77, 78, early 79 type thing, whereas we were kind of doing that. While our day jobs was assisting, our night jobs was, you know, grabbing any band we could do to come into the studio and and we were learning the way we were you know uh, uh, anything we could do to pick from the day jobs that we were doing to incorporate into the night stuff that was great so uh, we had a we had a great time 
Yeah, so you had a lot of punk bands from the Vancouver area coming in, and like the studio is well known in the in the eighties for a lot of rock bands from coming from the states and from far away from from Vancouver. Did did yeah. that happen to the punk bands at all? Did you get many punk bands coming up from anywhere in the in the? No, no, no not really. That didn't really happen at all. So. Out of um, the, the progression of how the, the long change, I mean, ultimately, the key point in, in this whole thing would be Bruce Fairburn. Um, Bruce Fairburn was a, uh, originally was a horn player in Vancouver. He ironically wrote with another person. His name was Jim Valance, of course, later much more well-known by Brian Adams, co-writing partner. They were both uh, University University of British Columbia, you know, music students. Um, Jim Valance was the session drummer for most of the jingle things. Bruce Fairburn uh, became a horn player and then somehow by default latched into, because nobody else wanted to do it, became the producer um, of a band called Prism. Mm. And... Um, they started writing their early stuff. It was the early albums were not recorded. The first two albums were not recorded at Little Mountain. They were recorded at Mushroom Studios, which of course is famous for doing the first um, uh, Heart album. When Heart were couldn't play in the United States, they moved over the border and, and were in Vancouver for a number of years. Um, Bruce Fairburn uh, became the producer of that project, and actually Jim Valance was so embarrassed to be a writer of that because it was pop, it was sort of almost beneath him, um, is listed on the record there as Rodney Higgs as the writer. And so a lot of those for the first two Prisms albums. Uh, eventually, the Prism on the third album, they moved over to Little Mountain Sound at that point. At that point, Bob Rock became Bruce Fairburn's engineer. And they did that album, uh, I think, um, uh, Apologize, I can't remember which Prism album was, but I think it was it had the song Armageddon on it. And from that relationship, they got the Loverboy album because at this point, both uh, Jim Valance and Brian Adams were starting to write for this new band, even though it was sort of a already a band of somewhat known musicians became Loverboy. Mm -hmm. First album again was done over at Mushroom Studios. Again, Bruce Fairboom was now starting to enjoy working better over at Little Mountain Sound, particularly Studio A, the larger of the two studios. He felt that there was the bigger sound and he couldn't could get it in there. And Bob Rock was his engineer for these projects. And so, obviously, the next Loverboy album that came, the third album, was, of course, with the huge The Kid Is Hot Tonight and everything like that, was basically the record that broke them in the United States. Of course, they toured extensively throughout the United States as the warm-up band for, and I'm just, I apologize for the name, I just can't remember the name right now, um, big, big uh, 80s, early 80s band. The name will come to me in a moment. I apologize for that. <laughs> and um, they, uh, so, but that was the key thing. So that was the first time, I believe, bands from the rest of the world were starting, particularly, in, you know, in the United States, were starting to go, oh, where did this Loverboy album get recorded? I mean, it was like number one, you know, or it certainly went near number one on Billboard, had a number of singles off that album. Um, they were managed by Bruce Fair, Bruce, um, Bruce, Allen, uh, talent in Vancouver, who also did uh, Backman Turner Overdrive. And so, again, there was a little bit of, you know, things behind that, you know, with this sort of group of musicians. Jim Valance was managed by Bruce Allen. Um, eventually, of course, Brian Adam became man um, um, uh, managed by 
Bruce Allen. And so there was this whole group of people, and they all now started to gravitate to wanting to work at Little Mountain Sound. And then all of a sudden the next, you know, so the relationship of Bruce Fairburn being the producer, Bob Rock being the engineer, and then, of course, the next person that came on the scene, Mike Fraser. Mike Fraser was the assistant engineer on a lot of those early projects. Again, Mike Fraser started out in the dubbing room also. I taught him, you know, assistant engineer, various things. And then eventually, um, one of the projects allowed Bob Rock, Bruce Fairman was not available to do it because he was uh, committed on something else. And so Bob Rock was given the opportunity to become effectively the producer. And he pulled up Mike Fraser to be his engineer on those projects mm -hmm. and that would be about 1982 i believe i think that that was the cult was the first album that bob rock moved up to producer and uh mike fraser moved up to engineer and then there was another person uh named ken lomas who moved up from assistant from runner to basically the assistant engineer on that project at that time we were also technically and this is my part that I was we were going from a simple 16 track recording studio with a Neve console you know with a nice Neve console but a 16 track 2 inch tape machine and mm -hmm. a 24 track tape machine and then right around that era was of course the start um, which was happening all through America and all through the rest of the world we were now starting to have the ability to lock two analog tape machines together with time code to effectively giving artists now 46 tracks mm. to record with. Okay. So all of that thing, and of course the switch also from Neve consoles to much larger SSL consoles. Yeah, yeah. I want to ask you, Ron, about the, the SSL 
um, that you got in. What challenges did that give to you? Well, the chat, I don't, for me, where the, where the interesting thing, that, okay, the SSL was the second SSL in Canada. Uh, there was one, of course, at Morgan Heights, the famous studio of Rush era and uh, the police and many other things. Uh, but we were the second studio to get it, and it was still not actually that popular in the United States. It was still mostly API and Eves and things like that. Mm. Where we got the key was because by then we had already heard through Brian Adams, who is now somewhat major, and his engineer producer, Bob Clearmountain, was working at the power station in New York. Mm. And New York at that point, the power station in New York was the definitive the studio to go to. Yeah. It had the great ambient drum sound, it had the big things, and of course Bob Clearmount was sort of the pre precursor to that whole ambient thing, even though he not necessarily invented it or brought it back into vogue. It was more actually U2 and actually British bands that um, brought that back. But, you know, so SSL was starting to become this, mm, this new thing, and of course the biggest thing that it had automation, a wonderful and total recall automation that Neve consoles did not offer at that time. Uh, they did offer a, a very simplistic form of, of automation, but at the time there was a we were going to be doing the next Loverboy album called Love and Every Minute of It, 1984 this was. And they uh, were bringing, now not using Bruce Fairburn, they were going to use a fairly famous British producer and engineer. Uh, his name is Alan, Tom Allen. Tom Allen, who was, yeah. I think, known from uh, other many other heavy metal bands yep. in the United, in England. Um, Judas Priest, was that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Right. Yeah, right. Judas Priest, yeah. Correct. So Tom Allen was brought over, and he brought over his engineer. Now, he had requested, he's, you know, of course, normally he did not work out of England. This was the first thing he came over. Um, he said, I want to do the next album that needs to be done on an SSL, and I also want to record it digitally on a Sony digital 24-track um, digital recorder. And so then the dilemma came for us at the at Little Mountain Sound. You know, I mean, I wasn't purchased in the those part of the meetings, but effectively it was, well, uh, you're not going to get the job unless you get those two things. So a decision was made. Now, here's where my part came is because I had both an engineering background and a technical background. It, it was felt that I should be the assistant engineer on that project because, of course, we had a brand new console in and the digital aspect. So effectively, they would have a full-time tech in the studio all the time. And then because of my engineering thing, I could understand when they asked to hook in a piece of outboard gear or a patch bay that I would have that knowledge also. Hmm. So it was a, a, a real awakening of having that style of console come into our studio and it being very, very successful. And of course, as soon as that left, Bob Rocks and the Bruce Fairbairns, that was the start of the era of the international bands coming into. So it came for, that was 1984, 1985, around about late 85, that's when uh, Bruce Fairbairn got contacted by Bon Jovi. See, again, power station, Bon Jovi. Mm -hmm. uh, John Bon Jovi used to be the janitor because his dad or his uncle owned 
the power station, but John Bon Jovi was basically the 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 night broom sweeper uh, at that point at that studio. And the connection from the power station, Bob Clear Mountain, and all those connections kind of came. And Bon Jovi had had, I believe, one or two albums already that had gone nowhere recorded at the power station. The connection to Bruce Fairburn came. Uh, John Bon Jovi came to Vancouver, checked out the studio. Of course, now he knew an SSL, and looked at it, you know, and got to meet. And that was the start of our effectively international career. Uh, period that happened at Little Mountain Sound. I think that would have been 85, would have been the start of that. Yeah. So, of course, on, on the success of that first Bon Jovi album, that effectively made Bruce Fairburn and Bob Rock, of course, being the engineer on that project, became effectively internationally famous, and the phone calls came from all over the world at that point. Yeah. Now, now Ron, um, did you find that any of the bands around that time were a little bit reluctant to use the digital technology? No, 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 because you must remember... Um, uh, ironically, I still do teaching of that, and you know, the, there's the analog and the digital camp and whatever. Then I myself, including you know people like Bob Clear Mountain, are in the camp of. Um, for many years, us as engineers, we would be listening. We had a band off the on the floor. We would be going through the console. We would ha- listen up on the big speakers, and you can. This is a quotable thing from Clear Mountain, is. We would record the stuff, and then we would put it to a tape machine. And while we were tracking this, the thing, we'd be going, wow, this is sounding great. It's crisp. It's great. It's, it's punchy. It's, it's awesome. We've got this wonderful board now, the output gear, and it's great. And then we run it to this analog tape machine, and then we would play it back. And then us engineers would go, well, it used to sound good. <laughs> <laughs> you know, now, now it's got a lumpy bottom end. The top end has gotten all sort of soft and swishy, and the cymbals have gone all things like this. So uh, there's two camps to this. One is the camp of, well, I, I, I want to send something to a storage device, and I want that storage device to play it back. I don't want, to, I don't want an effects processor. Mm-hmm. And effectively, an analog multi-track machine and even the two-track mix-down machine, it, uh, you know, whether you like it or whether you're not, it's an effects processor. Mm, it yeah. alters the sound. The digital, on the other hand, does not. You send something to it, and what comes back is what you sent to it. Yeah. So you could say, well, that's clinical and clean or whatever. But on the other hand, as you know, most engineers, when they ultimately say digital has no character, well, you could look at it two ways. One, it has no character, or B, it's not imparting a change in the sound, right? It is a storage medium, which ultimately isn't that what a multi-track should be. It's a storage medium. If you want to alter the sound, we have a whole arsenal of outboard gear. We have Pultic equalizers. We have Neve compressors. You know, we, we, we can tailor the sound by choosing a microphone, a microphone preamplifier, an equalizer, and a compressor that give us whatever the character we want on whatever instrument we're recording. After that, we'd kind of like want to store it somewhere and have it not change. The other thing, of course, with, with analog tape, for every pass that you take, every pass that the head goes by the, the head, after about a thousand passes, it's not what it sounded like before either. Mm. The, the top end is slowly being wiped off. And, of course, this is the most famous one of that, of course, is um, Fleetwood Mac's Rumors album. Of course, they played the tape so many times that basically the, it started to shed, and they basically had to transfer... 
a number of the songs over onto another reel, and they were never able to get back the you know the sonic clarity they had. Including another one is Steely Dan's Asia was known for they ran it by so many passes that. You know, they had to transfer it. Yeah, uh, I can remember Roy Thomas Baker talking about that too with uh, Bohemian Rhapsody, with just how many yeah. how many takes they were doing. Yeah, yeah, and how many passes you would do because that's what it is. Mm. I mean, every it's uh, you put put a piece of tape running by a piece of metal, and you run it by uh, ten thousand times. Well, slowly it's starting to rip off your top end. Yeah, yeah, it's absolutely. Noisy, right? Yeah, and, and capstans were never very gentle on tape after a period of time either. So yeah, correct, correct. So I mean, the argument of analog and digital we were still facing to these days, uh, to to you know to these days, and uh, I can't ultimately answer it. But I think most engineers these days are totally happy working in Pro Tools, but they also understand that as before. The tape machine used to add certain things. They make sure now that the gear on the way in is going to be. So much more work is now done on using uh, traditional analog or tube-style microphones, amplifiers, uh, mm. preamplifiers, equalizers, and compressors. And after that, you know, then once it's on a storage device, they're basically happy with Pro Tools. Right. right? Yeah. So, Ron, I want to ask you about... Um there was a couple of things about what 80s rock music is known for. One is the big drums, and of course, Little Mountain Sound is known for having a big drum sound. Now, you would have yeah. you would have been involved in that. Was a, a lot of getting that sound trial and error, or did you actually know what you were going for beforehand? Well, here's a unique, here's one of my little things that I definitely uh, can be a big part of. Um, of course, during the uh, the late 70s, um, all of a sudden, Bob Rock and me buy the vinyl album, and it's the new U2 album. And we start playing that. It's the opening chords of the new U2 album, and you hear that drums, and it's often some distant big warehouse. And then Bob Rock and me look at each other and go, man, how the heck did they do that? Because really... Through the 70s, most of the, particularly the North American recording studios were what we would call dead boxes or the L.A., you know, um, drum sound personified by, you know, the Eagles or whatever. Very, very dry with, a, with a, just a token amount of reverb on the snare drum and maybe a little bit on the vocals or something like that. But it was very, very, very dry. Um, and all of a sudden, this started to come out and we were just, oh, man, how can we do this? How can we Well, we, pursued, you know, Bob Rock, yeah, I puttered away or anything. But we had all of a sudden one time I was doing DOA, doing their one of their singles, and actually it was called World War Three, and it actually exists as a YouTube video. You can go.
I put the drummer right in this loading bay. There's a loading bay between Studio N, Studio A, and Studio B. There's literally the classic loading bay. It's a good concrete floor, loading bay dock on it, and a big high thing, tin thing on the back thing. And so I, I said, so, well, I will put the drums right down in the loading bay on the floor there. And so Chuck Biscuits was down there, and then I put the bass player, Randy Rampage, and Joey Shithead. We put them up on the loading bay dock, and they looked up. We fed headphones in there, and um, there's actually a photo uh, that I provided um, Richie a while ago mm -hmm. on the website. Yeah. That's actually the thing. So we recorded the drums that way, and that was the first time we went, man, this is working great. So... For the next while, all the bands that I did at nighttime, that's the way I would record them. I would actually put the drums in the loading bay. Mm -hmm. So this was a known thing about 1982 I did it, 1983, Then um, Bob Clear Mountain, as I mentioned before, comes to record some additional songs for Brian Adams where he was already had recorded stuff at the power station. He comes to Vancouver to record, I think they needed three more songs, Kids Want to Rock, Run to You and another song they recorded at Little Mountain Sound because Brian happened to be home for a break or something like that. So they brought Clear Mountain uh, to Vancouver. Clear Mountain walks into the studio, and of course, it was still this sort of classic 70s dead box, right? Mm -hmm. uh, carpet on the floor, ba you know, baffling on all the walls, baffling on the roof, basically a dead room. And he walks through, and you know, we already kind of sensed this. And uh, so Bob's looking around and hunting and packing. I mean, it's a big room, you know, it's, it's 30 by 60 feet long, but it's a dead box still. And um, then we were going to go and get some additional microphones. We open up the thing, and we walked out of the loading bay dock. And, uh, and he goes, you can kind of see his eyes light up. And, and I happened to be there that night because I was helping do the assisting for that. And, um, he said, well, what about this? And I said, well, yeah, this is where I record drums. So I said, I put the drums right down in the loading bay dock. And he says, you do? Yeah. And I said, yeah, yeah, it's been working really well for me, like that type of thing. He says, well, I don't know if I could put Mickey in there. That's maybe a little bit too wild today. Anyway, the long and the short of it, he worked out an arrangement where he put the drums in the back of Studio A, positioned a number of baffles. We left the door open into the loading bay, left the door wide open, and then put some baffles with some plywood on it so that Mickey's drum sound would kind of hit the baffles and sort of direct the sound, let us say, out into the, into the loading bay. Mm -hmm. There was a quite, quite a large door. It was about five feet wide, you know, six feet, eight inches high that mm -hmm. went out. And continue. He then put a couple of microphones, a couple of U87 microphones out on the loading bay, and ultimately that became the drum sound because that was the closest he could get to the power station drum sound that he was used to. Mm. And, of course, you know, that night once he left, of course, you can imagine Bob Rock, Bruce Fairburn, <laughs> Mike Fraser, all of us were in there, mm, you know, wrote down the positions of all the microphones. <laughs> Bob, Bob, you know, Bob Clear Mountain did it, and that was the start of how we would do it. So, of course, the very next project that Bob Rock worked on I, if I'm not mistaken, was the cult album that he did. And, of course, Mickey Curry was hired as the drummer for that session because their drummer was not capable of playing in the studio. And so the band came over, but Mickey Curry was the drummer and uh, borrowed from Brian's band. And that was the start of the whole ambient um, sound. And that became transmuted into the sound that 
became known as the Little Mountain Sound drum sound. Wow. And, mm-hmm. and I, I think about that setup and how you describe that. And it's, it's kind of like I'm having like a little mental meltdown, just trying to th- think of like you guys working through all of the phase issues and everything to get that set up right. And it's like, yeah, no wonder you wrote everything down when it was all done. Because that just sounds like just a killer, killer setup. But it must have taken a, a bit of time to dial it in. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there was a lot of experimentation done because, of course, Bob, when he came in, he was on on a very tight schedule, so it was a very, very quick in and out type of thing. I spoke to, you know, uh, Clear Mountain over the years because I've assisted on a number of other Brian's projects, you know, because all when he built his studios. But, uh, you know, he said, look, that's the best I can do in the short amount of time I have. Later, of course, initially, Bob Rock and us, we noted exactly the way it was, but again, the sweet spot of where ultimately Bob Rock found the sweet spot for you know what became known as the Little Man Sound, uh, with him working with Bruce Fairburn and later his own projects. Uh, uh, definitely, the microphones were moved from the initial places that Bob Clearmount and ultimately became the Bob Rock and Mike Fraser variations of that. But mm. basically, both you know the, the classic thing was basically the door open into this loading bay. <laughs> yeah. um, one of the little fun things that would happen about this is, of course, by, by about the second album, whether it was Bon Jovi or Aerosmith, came into the studio, okay, bands, fans were starting to know that Little Mountain was, you know, where these bands were, so they would hang out front waiting for an interview, or for, a, you know, getting a, they'd bring their uh, vinyl albums to get a signature or something like that, and of course the bands were great uh, to to be able to do that. I mean, it was great, and then they'd come into the studio. Now, they'd start, uh, of course, then the band would start drumming. The, some of the fans would walk around to the back of the studio. Well, literally, the back of the studio was the proverbial just tin door that was the loading bay. It was a tin door. If you opened it up, there was the outside. There was no big insulation or anything like that. Mm. So what would start happening after a while, because <laughs> we had to stop this every time, the band would be playing, and of course, you could hear the drums quite clearly in the laneway in the back of the warehouse studio, I mean, and of uh, Little Mountain Sound. And so these fans would start to get really into it, and they'd start bashing on the door in time <laughs> with the band, right? Clang! Clang, you know, a bang, bang, which worked out fine. You probably wouldn't hear it in the song, but all of a sudden they didn't know the song was stopping, right? <laughs> so <laughs> all of a sudden they just keep banging in time, and then every so often the assistant engineer would have to run down to the thing, open the open the sliding, the open the um, fire exit door, and say, "Hey guys, come on, stop it, stop it. You can sit there and listen, but we can't bang on the back of the doors there because you know it's being recorded and everything like that." So. They would, it was a it was a pretty funny thing, but this used to happen every so often. We would hear stories out front from the receptionist. Would hear stories. Yeah, we had to go and shut the kids up in the back there because they were banging on the on the metal door again. <laughs> it was literally just this tin metal door with kids trying to bang in time. So probably, if you listen really, really, really closely, maybe you can hear some kid banging in time with a snare drum in the loading bay. <laughs> Ron, can I ask you about some of that? I don't know whether you worked with with the bands, some of the big bands that were there, and, and just share some of your memories of maybe some of the recording. Like you, you mentioned Bon Jovi, 
Do you have any memories that stick out to you about recording their albums? Not specifically, because unfortunately, on a technical issue, uh, I you know was not really involved with you know hanging around with the band and things like that. I mean, all of these bands were great. I think they really one of the things I think they really enjoyed and why they kept coming back to Vancouver is maybe it was a little bit of a, a break away from them from you know the the New York, Boston, L.A. Yeah. Uh, party dude. Um, combustibles, let us say, uh, things that they can, when they came to Vancouver, it was almost like a little bit like going to England or something like this. And uh, at that point, Vancouver was a much smaller, you know, it's not the big international city that it is now. Uh, we only had a few bars. We only had a few things. So I don't think the, the drug issue was not, that was the other thing. Maybe they were removed from some of the drug issues. And, and definitely that was particularly with regards to Aerosmith that really helped them because, you know, this Bruce had this long, effectively, I guess, talk with him to say that this is when you come here, this is what it is. So uh, other than maybe a little bit of drinking, uh, I think that they cleaned up and it just, you know, the beauty of the day and it just gave them a breakaway, let us say. You know, I just think that that was the biggest thing for all of these bands when they were able to come to Vancouver. It was a whole different attitude. Maybe it removed them from a lot of the... Um, the rock clubs, the good and the bad things that a rock club can have, right? Yeah, I think when, when we spoke to Bob Brooks, one of the things he thought was great about the studio is that they had the canteen in it. It was a communal canteen for everybody. And uh, there was a lot of socializing in there, a lot of relaxing to get out of the studio. Absolutely. That was the other thing. Because, of course, during that period of time, let us say 86 through the early, well, to 1991, when I was no longer there, Yes, at that point, we were now going gangbusters with, with bands coming in. So uh, there were times, of course, Bob Rock would be working with a band on one side and Bruce Fairburn would be working with a band on the other side. So we had two international bands in at the same, at the, uh, at the same time. And uh, what was so great is, similar to the sort of the British way of doing recording studios, there was one sort of central canteen and everybody kind of hung out there. And I think that it was slightly different than maybe the American studios at the time. I mean, not, not per se, but I mean, there everybody kind of had their own little lounge and it was separate. It was like privacy was more important and this is a big start and, you know, uh, Neil Diamond doesn't want to hang out with the Van Halen guys, right, type of thing, right? <laughs> well, here, we maybe we hadn't clued into that or whatever, but it was more of the British system. It was, it was just this central thing and everybody kind of ate together and hung out together and watched the same TV together type of thing. And um, so, yes, I would totally agree with you that uh, that that would be one of the things that would uh, maybe they enjoyed that. Yeah. Now, I want to ask you a question about Bruce Fairburn. What, what in your opinion, made him a great producer? What made Bruce Fairburn, and I will still stand to this day, he is a producer's producer. Okay. Where, why he is a producer's producer. A, because he had a true musical background in the sense that he went to the, you know, in other words, he had a musical degree. As a horn player, this is, he knew what arrangements were. He knew about tightening up arrangements. He was also a session musician. So as one of the things that Bob Rock, if you ever, when you talk to him and he said it in interview, for both myself, Bob Rock, Mike Fraser, one of the greatest learning tools we had was doing jingles through the day. What is a jingle? It is a perfect one-minute song, right? Yep. You have one minute to tell your story. 
so it it shows you we have an intro, we have a verse, we have a chorus, we have a breakdown, we possibly have a solo and everything like this, and we have to finish it in one minute. And so we started to learn about, and a lot of these artists that would come in would have wishy-washy arrangements or whatever, too many ideas in a song. So what we learned from, and Bruce Fairburn had learned, is what do we, what does this song actually need to say? So you've got too many ideas. Let's get rid of that idea. That's great, but let's pull that in. You can put that in a second. You've got, sometimes you would, uh, and I've been in the room, he says, you've got three songs here. We just need to, let's focus on what's the important element of the song, or what's the important element of what you're trying to say to things, both vocally, as, a, as, a, as, a, as the, as the uh, lyrics are, and musically. We only need one hook in a song. We don't need two, two hooks, right? <laughs> Save that other hook for the next song, right? Uh, put that in your catalog of hooks for other songs. And a lot of times when he would be working with these bands is, that's what it is, throwing too many ideas. Let's focus on the key factors of what is in the song. And because of his musical background, yet his rock and roll understanding, he was able to sort of switch between, similar to what George Martin was able to do for the Beatles. He had a classical training, but also understood what sensibility of what pop music was. And so he was the person who could come in and he had this very fine idea of being able to make the bands feel totally comfortable without getting all, well, F minor, you know, if, if you talk to Bob Rock or you ever see Bob Rock produce something like that, he doesn't go, well, you should be doing an F minus diminished key type of thing. No, no, he isn't like that because that disconnects from the band. He was able to talk at the band's level and make them feel comfortable, yet ultimately try to convey the 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 message of let's keep it simple let's rock right yeah yeah was was bob rock's approach very similar to bruce's or was there was there a big difference between how both of them produced what what better mentor would bob rock have than bruce fairburn yeah. what better mentor would would mike fraser have than you know bob rock slash bruce fairburn they all mm -hmm. work through each other um these but i i would say you know Bruce Fairburn was, at least in Vancouver, was the key producer who had that magic, you know, he was, you know, the George Martin of Vancouver, a person that happened to be at the right time, the right place, you know, I mean, if his career, man, he probably would have been a jazz musician and a horn player in a band type of thing, you know, yeah. remember, he was kind of thrown into the producing role because nobody else wanted to do it during when prison were recording. You know, everybody else wanted to just go, you know, to the bar at night time, and the poor engineer that was just left around was kind of going, well, you know, well, should we tighten up this arrangement a little bit? And so Bruce Fairburn kind of hung around and go, well, my musical background that I've learned, you know, that I got my degree from university on, allow me to do this. Of course, Jim Valance, uh, Brian Adams' writing partner, mm -hmm. uh, being a drummer, and it was the drummer on those prison albums, again, hung around. They were basically the educated musicians, similar to when Brian Adams started to write with, with Jim Valance. That's what the connection could. Brian Adams was this little snotty 18-year-old kid, you know, with all the attitude, and I know everything, and I'm writing songs, and Bruce and Jim Valance would sit down, yes, okay, here's a good idea, and here's a good idea, but you know what, you got three ideas, we just need this one idea, here's the hook, here's that thing. So, from Bruce Fairburn's background, as far as being a jingle drummer during the day, and starting to 
express, you know, learning how to do his own songs or writing. He had this perfect, um, how to say, opposite with Brian Adams in the sense that Brian Adams was this guy that had all attitude, um, you know, the young attitude, I know everything, and then yeah. we've got the, we've got um, Jim Valance being the no, uh, the methodical guy, but maybe not having the spark, right? So the two of them, that's why it worked out to be, you know, obviously a fantastic working relationship. Yeah. Now, Ron, you you obviously you left Little Mountain before they actually sold it. I think, and I think they sold it in like ninety two or ninety three. I left literally. I left about put it this way. I left. Um, six weeks before the famous Jimmy Page incident at the front door. <laughs> oh, oh, tell us about that. What, what was that one? Well, of course, at that point, it was uh, Jimmy Page and David, David, David Coverdale, Coverdale yeah. were doing their record. Of course, because uh, years before there, Coverdale had done, um, arguably, to this day still, the largest selling album that was done out of Little Miss Sound was done by White Snake. <laughs> And uh, they recorded at Studio B in Studio B at Little Mountain Sound, and of course they came because Studio B has where the famous ACDC album was done, um, recorded with Mike Fraser. Mm -hmm. So Mike Fraser was did the White Snake thing. White Snake, I guess, busted up or whatever, and it was Coverdale Page, the famous Coverdale Page album. So yep. they came to Vancouver again because of Mike Fraser at this point, who was now a world-renowned engineer and uh, they were going to produce it themselves well i'm assuming they could produce it themselves and they worked in studio b the album was going on and like this i had well you know i would already had just left you know little little mountain because i now had the opportunity to work for brian adams at the warehouse studio because he wanted to build his own studio and um, they were in, you know, they actually started the record before I left. And uh, one morning they came and uh, they tried to get on the front door. Doors locked. And there's a little, you know, sign on the front, you know, basically, you know, uh, the the landlord had basically shut the building down, changed the locks, and everybody was locked out of the building. <laughs> including Jimmy Page, which had all of his equipment in there, his guitar amps and everything like that type of thing. So it was a very, very apparently embarrassing moment and stuff like that. However, later in the day, apparently, they, uh, one of the assistant engineers was able to acquire a key, and they were able to get that because technically the landlord owned, you know, had, you know, all the stuff in the building was basically still his. Yeah, but surely they would have paid, they would have paid for the studio and, and everything. Like, to actually lock the guy, lock Jimmy Page out of the studio was a bit of a... Yeah. 
you know, a, a bad thing to do. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, things were had, uh, payments were made, whatever. Uh, the landlord paid, you know, the people that now own the studio uh, paid the extra money or whatever. The doors were unsealed. And basically, I think they just collected their gear. I think they did one or two more days of recording and then bailed and went to England to continue or uh, resume the album at that point. But, you know, it was one of the most embarrassing things. And I, I by this point, I just left. And so I just went, yeah, I knew it was going downhill by then and I knew that this was uh, I, I was so happy that I bailed uh, just before that. <laughs> uh, I left April April of 91 is when I left yeah, I'll, I'll have to ask Mike about that now when we speak to him De <laughs> definitely I'm, yeah. that's definitely on my list to ask him <laughs> yeah so yeah, well, you can imagine how embarrassing it was for Mike because that was the other thing you must remember back in those days engineers were still employees of the studio Mike was arguably he was freelance but in reality, he was still an employee of the studio. I mean, the reason the band was there was because Mike Fraser, to a degree, was an employee. Yeah. You know? uh, uh, it was in a, in a loose type term, but certainly Mike Fraser was not working anywhere else for the same reason Bob Rock was not working anywhere else. Bruce Fairburn was not working anywhere else. We were all they were all working pretty well exclusively at Little Mountain, at Little Mountain Sound. Mm. Yeah. Now, when did you get it in, in? When did you really start thinking about designing studios? Would it have been like late eighties, or, or did you always want to design a studio? Yeah. Oh, definitely. Because of my background, I mean, you know, as as I'm working both on the technical side and then the engineering side. By about the mid eighties, because as I mentioned earlier, we were going through this explosive thing of you know, Neve consoles, SSL consoles, bigger SSL consoles. Uh, one twenty-four track, two twenty-four. Well, one sixteen-track, twenty-four track, two twenty-four tracks. Sometimes three twenty-four tracks all locked together. Then digital tape machines. Outboard gear was growing. Um, we were just running out of space in the studio. I was also seeing that, you know, when the producer was working, they would have to walk over here and here. And I just said, look, you know, I, if I ever got to do it, I, you know, I, I would be doing it different than this, right? Then in nineteen eighty-six. Brian Adams asked me, he said, I want to do my next album in my own house in West Vancouver. Do you want to help me build my studio? And um, sure, I said, sure. So uh, he says, I'm going to bring Clear Mountain out and we'll, we'll have a meeting. And, uh, you know, so went up to the house and he had a rumpus room downstairs. And he said, well, this is where we're, I'm going to buy a small SSL. We'll put a SSL. I'll buy a Studio 24 track. We'll record that there. And then I'll put the band upstairs. We'll record Mickey up in the living room, and we'll put the amps off of here, and the Leslie speaker will put off in the bathroom upstairs there. So that was the meeting. And effectively, Brian said to me, he said, do you think you can put this together for me? And so this was Expo, the year of Expo 86 in Vancouver. And so effectively, the summer of 86, I did all my, I would do my job during the day at Little Mountain Sound. And then after that, I would take, have dinner and then go up to Brian's house and spend another four or five hours doing all the wiring. I mean, literally wired every single piece of thing. And then he said, upstairs in my living room, he says, I don't want my living room ruined. I want it looking just like my living room. So I had to hide the little microphone panels behind <laughs> little doors and things like that. So that made it really, really good. So... Clear Mountain was ultimately very, very happy with what then. So the whole album, his album called Into the Fire, um, was recorded at his his house in West Vancouver. 
and later they called that Cliffhanger Studios because actually a number of other bands did record there and various overdoses, including Van Halen and things like that, used it because uh, there was a period of time when they couldn't get into the Little Mountain, right? So this allowed Brian said, now, nah, now, nah, you just use my house up in West Van because he was on tour during that period of time. Mm. So um, that was my first taste of I got to build a studio by myself. I did have help at the very beginning with my mentor, of course, John Vertasic, the person who basically was was technical director at Little Mountain Sound Studios. So we, uh, you know, we would sit there and meeting there, and that's why I kind of started that. After that, I, due to the success of that, uh, Katie Lang, who was still living in Vancouver at the time, uh, through a roundabout way because she'd worked at Little Mountain a little bit, said, oh, I want to have a home studio too. And so she went up and saw Brian's studio and said, well, I'm living in a thing. Can, can we build a home studio for me there? So that's why I did that. Another Vancouver artist called Colin James, sort of a blues kind of guy, did that. And then a number of little private studios of people. So each of these things made me a little bit more confident in how to wire up and if I got to put a studio together, how would I do it? Then I got approached by Jim Valance. And Jim Valance said, well, uh, I'm, you know, I'm writing for all these people, you know, Hart and uh, Ozzy Osbourne, uh, Joan Jett, all these people were now coming to Vancouver to write with Jim Valance due to the strength, of course, his co-writing on a lot of the Aerosmith albums. Mm-hmm. And, but he, effectively, they came to his basement in his house in Vancouver. I mean, there was a full SSL that I put down there, but effectively, it was a little bit of a just, you know, you came to the back door and you walked down a flight of stairs, and Jim was saying, you know, i, I got to build my own studio. You know, I just can't keep having these artists coming to my house. So he, he, we looked around, and ultimately, there's a studio that's now called the Armory Studio, and uh, I built that from the ground up. It's the only studio in Vancouver that's being built from the ground up as a recording studio. So as I say to people, if the earthquake comes to the to Vancouver, that's the building you run to because I'll be the last building standing because we built it so strong. And so <laughs> it is the true floating floor. In other words, everything that could be done properly was done there. Of course, Jim Valance was oh, had had the the financial ability to build a proper recording studio. He was also a very, very smart man that he put extra suites in that building so that, as we said, even if the building sat empty, he'd be making money because of his three leasers on the ground floor and one up on the second floor basically paid for the operation and taxes on his building. And so the recording studio, effectively, uh, as we know at the Armory Studio, um, was built, and, and I, I did all the install, and that was my first studio that I got built as, an, as a world-class international studio that I had everything the way I wanted it to be. Um, then a little uh, out of that, Brian Adams suddenly goes, oh, well, I want my own studio too. So that's when in 1991... The change came out that I did by. Now, the interesting thing with the Bruce Fairburn and Jim Valance connection, of course, Jim Valance built the studio. He ran it. Then Jim Valance got a really, really bad back problem, the classic you know, drummer back problem because they don't sit on the chairs properly when you're young. He, it was so bad that he basically decided that he was no longer going to be in the music industry. It was a very sad moment for him. But he just felt that the way this was also Nirvana had come out and, you know, the, the grunge rock had started. And so the, the type of music that 
that Jim Vallance uh, wrote was no longer in vogue to, in his opinion. You know, uh, this whole new era had come out, and uh, grunge, you know, just from down down Seattle thing. Mm-hmm. I will argue that grunge started in Vancouver and went down to Seattle, but uh, that's a whole other story. <laughs> but anyway, um, you know, um, anyway. Uh, Jim Vallance decided he no longer, with the relationship Bruce Fairbairn now was running into the problem of Little Mountain. Of course, the problems at Little Mountain, he had no studio to work in in Vancouver anymore. He approached Jim Vallance, and the arrangement was he bought the studio from Jim Vallance. So Bruce Fairbairn's family still own the Armory Studios to this day. And so this now finally gave Jim Va- um, Bruce Fairbairn his own studio to work with. And, of course, he did many, many albums in there, uh, Van Halen, Chicago, uh, Kiss, The Cranberries, um, blah, blah, blah. And, of course, the last album he was working, he was working on the new Yes album there, and then he died of a brain hemorrhage. Hmm. So that was his passing. But the family still own the recording studio. Yeah. So, Ron, one final question for me, and this might be a very naive or maybe a loaded question, right? So... What if I was to say that recording studios now are becoming obsolete because you can fix anything with a computer to make it sound whatever way you want? How would you respond if someone said that to you? I would say that to, to, a, to a large degree you're correct because the, the, the idiom of pop music that we're dealing with right now is basically based upon um, the ability to have somebody with minimal talent but highly visual appealing aspects, we can pretty well make you a star. Yeah, yeah. Uh, The technical people in the background can put anything together and, uh, you know, can be auto-tuned and corrected and timed and done to everything. Uh, The young, most of the young kids nowadays don't seem to find that as a problem in pure pop. And the analogy, the analogy that has been made by a number of people that I've talked to recently is we're kind of right now in that era from 1960 to about 1963 where pop ruled and um, uh, writers ruled. Uh, you must remember right now whether it's, um, I'm just trying to remember the name of the Swedish guy, but you know the Swedish guy is basically a pop machine. He's the ABBA of of this generation. He'll write for Rihanna, he'll write for this, he'll write for that. And he just has this magic touch right now, and there's a group of people like that. Mm. In Nashville, you could say this the same thing. There's a group of people that are able to generate this pop thing, and it um, is financially very successful to what few record labels are left. On the other hand, there are still the I still keep in communication with the warehouse studio, with the armory studios, and things like that. Some of these larger studios that have still left, um, they are able to make it, and there are still bands. I mean, uh, how would it? Little uh, the the warehouse studio, the studio uh, Brian Adams studio, um, has continued to generate bands in there all the time. Of course, the last very famous band is uh, ACDC, of course, just did their album in there. But there are many other Canadian bands that are still using it because ultimately there are still bands. There are still drums, bass, guitar bands, and they need a room to record in. Um, They don't... They And yes, you can do this in your own home studio, but you can never recreate the sound of drums in a big space. You just got to go to a big space. Right. Yeah. And we definitely see, um, you know, a lot of bands that we do talk to. And, and like you said, there's very few record labels that are still around. 
that you know these bands they pick and choose how to use their budget and you definitely see a lot of bands that will take their budget and say okay we have to get the big room the good sound for our drums and we'll do all of that you know there and get that good sound and then we're going to go back to our home studios to record our basses and guitars and then it's a toss-up of whether they go into a professional room for their vocals or not and you see many bands that are still making you know music with real instruments that that's what where they're kind of spending their budget these days and i would exactly agree with you i think for any of these bands any of you young bands that are listening to this right now i mean i would tend to say this is the same thing i go through this because i one of the courses i teach is called studio design where literally this is these are young students that are actually in a recording school right now because the reality is there are very few studios so what i'm trying to the, the things that i try to stress to any of my students is yes you could try and get all the stuff for your home studio 16 microphones headphone systems and everything like that for your home studio i said why would you want to do all of that once you go to a regular studio that has all of that already set up, has a nice room, has isolation rooms, has a cafeteria out front and stuff like that, spend a bit of money, go there to do your tracking. Spend a week at a proper studio with an assistant engineer and everything like that with a nice big console, big analog console there. Go and do it. Headphone systems all sorted out, um, lots of microphones, separation between the drummer and the Spend your money there. Mm. Then after that, yes, with Pro Tools and I, then bring it home. You can do all the other overdubs at home, bass, guitars, vocals, keyboard overdubs, whatever you need to do, Then, which then saves you a lot of money because you're not on any clocks at that point. You only also need one microphone or two microphones, a couple of microphones, a couple of pieces of outboard gear, a couple of mic, good mic preamps, and you can effectively do just as good as a major recording studio. Right. Then the other part that a major recording studio is, as you said there, then you make the decision, do I mix it in the box at home, or do I then take it back to a larger studio, for example, to a Mike Fraser, to get to mix it on a big Neve console or an SSL console so that the Pro Tools outputs can be run back through an analog console, get the character of the, of the analog console, and also a room that you know is true, because we... Another thing is that a lot of these home projects, these kids mix it on these home studios, and then they and you, you they try to listen to it against something else, and, and they go, well, why does it sound horrible? There's no bass or thing. Oh, well, my mm. room has bass problems. My friend, well, why why throw money at at your eight by ten room by putting so-called bass traps? Or oh, this will solve the problem? No, it won't. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing will solve the problem in an eight by ten rectangular box. Okay, this is why we have proper recording studios with non-parallel walls and acoustics and stuff has been spent on. That's when you go back to a proper studio and mix your project. Right. So those are the two areas that still uh, a major recording studio or a major facility still can make their money on. That mid-period, you can do all at home just as well as you could in the big room. Right. Yeah. All right, Ron, one final question for me. Of all the albums you worked with in Little Mountain, does one stand out to you as being your proudest achievement? Oh, you caught me off guard here. <laughs> put it this way: I think that it, that the the pinnacle of of you know what we were seeing, and ultimately it, it did get documented too. Of course, was the second the Pump album by Aerosmith. I mm. think that for the band themselves, I think that was their pinnacle of an album. There's you know they had the most amount of singles. I think they were right in that mid period of working with their producer. It was the second album working with Fairburn. 
I think that uh, they got to experiment. Of course, besides one of the one of the connection, of course, also with with um, Aerosmith at that point. If you're if you listen to that album, of course, there's a lot. Sometimes in the little links between the songs, these these little weird little, you know, horn parts or little percussion things. Well, that was a guy in Vancouver named Randy Rain Roosh, who was basically a hippie who lived on an island, right? But but you know, definitely used friend of Bruce Fairburns. They would bring that guy in during the day there and uh, Steven Tyler and they would have the greatest time. They would be on the floor and trying different things and water phones and then trying little things. So I think that that was the period of time that the whole band had such a great time in Vancouver. I think that Bob Rock and Bruce Fairburn did a fantastic sounding album. I mean, he still stands up to this day. Yeah, definitely. Um, sonically, uh, Bruce Fairburn production-wise was awesome. And I think for both Bob Rock and Bruce Fairburn and Little Mountain Sound, it kind of if there was a way, if there was a period of time where we hit the apex of, yes, we now have all the components together to create great music and also to have bands come to our studio and enjoy the whole work experience of them being at, at Little Mountain Sound. I think that that's when it all happened. Excellent, excellent. Yeah, it's it's a, it really is an amazing thing. And I think that talking with you tonight, it, I think it really kind of, coalesced a lot of elements together and, and really put together the whole story and, and, and it's pretty amazing that that this one studio up in canada just generated this really this cast of professional characters that that went out and, and like pollinated this whole industry and it's continuing today and it's amazing you know the only other one i can really think of that's like that would be like you know over in england with with the studios with emi but that was more of a a corporate dictated studio as opposed to you guys where people were freely going there and it, it's pretty amazing when you think of that this one studio is so rooted in a lot of things that we know about music today yep yeah i know and and of course i've been always really proud that uh that you know i got to be a part of that during that 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 crew of uh, uh, probably about 10 or 15 people that ran through the studio. I mean, our mentor, of course, was was Roger Monk, who is still in the industry mm -hmm. as an engineer. He was the guy that kind of started and trained us as engineers. And uh, he still runs Dick and Roger's post-production. He still does, uh, occasionally he will do um, symphony parts and stuff like that, even though he's mostly in post-production. So, for example, the latest Mike Buble, Michael Buble album, of course, uh, done at the Warehouse Studio, produced partially by Bob, um, uh, Bob Rock. Um, uh, there's, there's, brings in Roger Monk to do those string parts. Mm -hmm. right? You must remember another person that came out, of, not directly out of Vancouver, but uh, from Vancouver Island, is David Foster. Mm-hmm. And David Foster is also another little Canadian connection. And again, he produced albums at, how about his connection to Bob Rock is, well, the Paola's album, because they couldn't call themselves the Paola's because they couldn't get break into the United States because of the name Paola. <laughs> There's no way they were going to break. And so the American record company says, you've got to change your name. And of course, by this point, um, uh, David Foster was already, already quite famous in the United States. He came up to Vancouver to record the new Paola's album, and he said, there's no way they're going to touch it with the name Paola's. So that's when they changed the name to Rock and Hyde for Bob Rock and Paul Hyde, and the album was called Rock and Hyde, and uh, that was the album that was released in the United States. It didn't do that much, but that was produced by 
with David Foster, Studio B, at Little Mountain Sound. So there were a lot of these people going back and forth like that, and you must remember David Foster started out as a session musician. Mm. He's another session musician. So he has worked a number of times in Vancouver at Little Mountain Sound. I mean, I was the assistant on one of David Foster's things when he did all the the orchestra stuff for the Olympics uh, that were in 1986 in uh, the Winter Olympics at uh, the Man of Motion thing. I don't mm-hmm. remember that. Yep. Man of Motion thing. Well, that's well, that was all done in Vancouver. I was the assistant engineer where they did the symphony orchestra for mm-hmm. that. So there was a, you know, it can go on the hard thing. Uh, and one other thing that should be mentioned also is another uh, band, even though it's not directly, um, Skinny Puppy uh, oh. was a Vancouver band. Okay. And uh, the engineer that worked for that, his name is Dave Ogilvie. And originally he worked out of Mushroom Studios and most of the projects of Skinny Puppy started out, um, worked was done at um, Mushroom Studios. However, shortly in, you know, in the late, early, late 80s, early 90s, uh, Dave Ogilvy again moved over to Little Mountain Sun. The last Skinny Puppy album was done at Little Mountain Sun, and when they toured in the United States, um, Nine Inch Nails was the warm-up band. Wow. Oh, I've heard of them. They were, <laughs> yeah, yeah, but they were the warm-up band. So again, Dave Ogilvy went out and not only did he record the band, he was almost like the sixth member of this band, the fifth member of this band. When they went out, he also did live sound. So that's how him and Trent got to know each other. And so this relationship has lasted even to this day where they still help each other out on him. So, and obviously, Nine Nail became quite famous and things like that. Um, Dave Ogilvy finally made a nice paycheck a few years ago. Uh, not that that's good for your show, but that little song called Call Me Maybe uh, by, a, by a Vancouver girl, um, that was done by, by, by uh, Dave Ogilvy. Okay. So... His hard oh, and Dave Ogilvy did a lot of other hard rock bands. You know, he was you know that sort of metal, whatever you call it, that metal industrial metal. Yeah, 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 yeah. That almost Skinny Puppy was the the purveyor of that type of thing. Um, Dave Ogilvy, who still works extensively out of the Warehouse Studio and also at the Armoring Studio, um, they were also in the, sort of in the wings, but much more in the alternative because, of course, Skinny Puppy were never commercially successful. But uh, ultimately, you know, uh, as history will repeat, they were a, a pioneering band, and Dave Ogilvy and what he what what he was able to do with the whole machine type of thing, working with machines and distorting them and loading bays and all those type of thing, that was really his uh, his right. forte. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it just it just continues to to go on and 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 grow. So yeah, it's Excellent. cool. You know, we we definitely appreciate you taking so much time to talk to us tonight and okay. uh, just give us so much more information than that we had before as well and some really cool insights and uh yeah we we definitely really appreciate you taking the time thank you very very much for uh having me uh on your show oh, no problem ron it's been a it's been a blast every, yeah. everyone i'm talking to about little mountain i'm thinking oh oh i'm not the techie guy now i'm not <laughs> going to be able to ask any questions but it's been it's been really good so far i'm learning a lot so yeah it's been great Great. Well, yeah, again, again, Ron, thank you so much for uh, for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. Thanks so much. We'll send you the links, Ron, when we start running all this, so you'll be able to listen to it all. Heavy tape splicing will be involved. Right? <laughs> <laughs> That's Scott's job, not mine. <laughs> okay.
See, see now if you can remember, there's your analog and digital. Remember, if it was the old analog, you would have been tape splicing. Oh, with I, tape I, that is one thing that I do not miss is <laughs> tape splicing. Okay, I'm going to send you. Uh, I'll send you, um, uh, Richie. I'll send you a little funny photo of uh, Studio A at Little Mountain Sound. A funny photo of how much tape we used to go through. It's actually. Uh, I'll send it to you uh, as soon as I hang up here. I'll send you an e email. Excellent. It's another engineer who's also in the industry. His name is Pat Glover. Uh, one of the other guys of our crew. Again, more he. He didn't tend to do those type of things, uh, the hard rock type of stuff. But again, he was involved with many, many of the bands too. But I'll send you a funny photo with and show you what us guys used to have to deal with of why we don't like analog taping. <laughs> wow, excellent. Hey. I look forward to seeing that. All right, Ron, thanks. Thanks for coming on. Okay, that is a wrap for Little Mountain Sound segment number seven. I really hope you guys enjoyed that one. Like I said at the beginning, he has an amazing, amazing memory of what went on, and he really does provide probably the largest historical perspective of anybody so far on Little Mountain. Now, we do have some other really, really cool guests coming up in this series as well. Can't wait to run those either. In some cases, a few of these upcoming guests, this is the first time, maybe the only time they'll ever appear on a podcast. So we are certainly honored to have a lot of these guys on. And again, if you want to keep up with what Ron is doing today, that is DragonflyMobileRecording.com. So big thanks to Ron for coming on. Big thanks to Richie for setting that puppy up. And of course, always big thanks to you guys for continuing to listen to Focus on Metal. And I will do my best to try to remember to post some of those great pictures that Ron was talking about during the interview. Either I'll post them on the website, or if I can, maybe I'll post them in the show notes on the blog spot, the, you know, focusonmetal.blogspot.com. Maybe I'll just post the pictures up there, let you guys see some of the cool stuff that Ron sent us. So I guess that's a good segue. If you want to keep up with us, go to focusonmetal.net, focusonmetal.blogspot.com. Keep up with Richie on Facebook. Keep up with me on Twitter. And you can keep up with all the great podcasts in the network by going to blastsyndicate.com or you could really expand your listening horizons by going to earpeeler.com. So again, for Richie and myself, thank you for listening. And until we talk to you again next week, remember... Focus on metal! Everything else is insignificant. Still here? It's over. Go home.